You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Nancy Greenspan, an author whose previous work, The End of the Certain World, The Life and Science of Max Born, the Nobel physicist who ignited the quantum revolution, is, in my humble opinion, the definitive biography of one of history's most important scientists. She has now written Atomic Spy, The Dark Lies of Klaus Fuchs, which again is the book to read to understand the life motivations and impact of one of the world's most notorious spies. So welcome, Nancy. Thank you for talking to us here at SpyCast. We've been waiting a while to have this conversation, so I'm glad we finally were able to make it happen. Me too. Thank you for having me and for the nice introduction. And um, I, I, I re, I, to reiterate, um, I was able to find a lot of background information on Fuchs that had been hidden in archives for all these years. And so it does add to his story. And I was excited to be able to do that. So it's exciting to be able to talk to you about it. Absolutely. And this is certainly right down my aisle as, a, uh, <laughs> yes. as someone who studies this. So let me, let me start out by asking about ideas for this book. Did the, the idea to write the Klaus Fuchs biography come out of your research for Max Born? Was it something that you yes. kind of wanted to do for a while? Yes, it did. Um, uh, he, he was an intriguing person when I was researching Max Born. At that time, which was in the late 1990s, early, you know, early turn of the century, uh, there was very little about him in the National Archives in London. They had, it was interesting, they, I went to check, they had two files about on him, fairly thin, and one of them, and I kept thinking, there's got to be more on this person. So then I come across a little post-it note almost kind of thing from, you know, earlier days in the 1950s saying, asking, um, it was a, an archivist type, administrative type, asking one of the scientists uh, about what they should do with all of these papers. They had boxes, 100 boxes on Klaus Fuchs. 
And the answer was, throw them away. <laughs> so I thought, oh, my goodness, well, I guess there isn't much on Klaus Fuchs, you know. So I, I kind of gave up that idea because you can't write a biography without information. And he also didn't leave a whole lot himself. So he here he was, a seemingly nice person who the Bournes and many other people were very fond of, who became a spy unbeknownst to any of them. And uh, so, he, you know, that was the intriguing part of him. How do you put these pieces together of this person? And didn't look like there was much of an answer. And then other people started um, writing, you know, a few things, and it became clear that MI5 had dumped a huge amount of information at the National Archives. And there are now thousands of pages on Fuchs and people who related to Fuchs. And so, you know, there's there's just everything there. And once you start knowing a little bit about him, and you, especially, I'm because of Max Born's biography, I became very familiar with the archives and in Germany and getting myself around them and how to access things there and going there. I mean, I'm, you know, I've been going there for years to do research and, and it wasn't a big effort for me to start exploring a little bit more, which no one else had really ever done. There was, was some thought that there wasn't much there. And I just thought, well, I at least have to check. And lo and behold, uh, someone told me, oh, you'll never find anything there. And this archivist at the, um, at, for the University of Kiel, where, where folks was, wrote me this, this little note. It was in German saying something like, uh, well, take a look at these files. You might hit gold here. And I did. <laughs> it was all of the, it was filed as miscellaneous. <laughs> so, you know, it didn't even have his name on it, but it was all about what he and his brother did at the University of Kiel fighting the Nazis. So there we were. That was a good start. So that's how I, and then I realized I actually could write this because I had found one, there was the MI5 information about the spying. And then I was able to find, oh, and half a dozen more um, German uh, archives that had information about him. So that's how it all happened. It's, well, beyond the documents, which, um, you know, is a huge find for any historian, but you also had the opportunity to, and you've done this with the Max Born book as well, to talk to family members and people who knew him well. Yes, I did. Um, I have a, a close friend in Berlin whom I made through the, the uh, Max Born biography, and he introduced me to the family. And um, it wasn't clear that they were going to want me to write a book, and I knew that I had to at least have some access to them, and they had to be willing to talk to me in order to really get good information. And his nephew um, is there. Klaus did not have any children. He did end up getting married, but he didn't have any kids. So I met this nephew who was really the keeper of the files for Klaus and the family. I didn't realize how many until the very end when he kind of opened up this door and there were all these things that I'd not seen in years as I've been talking to him. But I did find them finally. And he introduced me to other cousins and who several who live here in the U.S., and they all were extremely helpful in, with information on different family members and pictures and, you know, all of that, all of those types of things. So that, to my mind, there weren't many people alive who still alive who knew him but there were enough and i you know it's funny when i when i was interviewing people for the max born biography i just happened to 
he he was involved with everybody, all the German immigrants, and one of them was Hans Bethe. So I spent an afternoon at that time with Hans Bethe in the 1990s, and we talked about Klaus Fuchs. So even though I wasn't interviewing him about Fuchs, I did meet people who had known him, you know, at Los Alamos and places like that, um, and did get information from that accidentally. And so I had all that information. I, I spent an afternoon with Edward Teller at that time, and we talked about folks. And so, you know, it just just by accident, it all kind of fell in my lap, which was really nice. Well, it's it would be easy historically with writing a book like this about any spy or, and you know, in our from our perspective, a traitor um, or you know someone that that hurt the West, yeah, uh, and be very judgy. Uh, but I must commend you for for taking someone so reviled by so many and making him, let me use the word sympathetic. I mean, I think that it's hard to read this book and not come out of it going, okay, like I don't agree, but I get it. Is there a difficulty as an author, and this might be a kind of a universal question, to maintain your objectivity? Because you know, you have to at this point, but how do you, how do you not, like, look, I, I wanna hang out with Klaus Fuchs even though he's, he screwed <laughs> us over. He seems like a guy that I you know I would love to have a conversation with, but I'm yeah. not the author, right? You know, how, how do you maintain yeah. that when you're so sucked in to this person's life? Well, that's a really good question. And I think partly I was influenced by his friends and what I read from them, like Max Born, like Rudy Piles, who was another mentor, and the connection that they kept with him, at least for a while, once he confessed, they did not, they were totally upset by what he had done, terrible, but they did not, um, they didn't, they didn't just throw them aside. They were concerned about themselves too, because they, they were being emigres concerned, were concerned, um, you know, were, were worried that they would be pulled into the same mess, which they had nothing to do with. So I, first, so I saw the reaction of people who knew him well, and they didn't treat him with, you know, with keeping away from him. They helped him. Now, they did all kinds of things. So um, that was one indication of the way other people regarded him. Even um, Dick White, who was both the head of MI5 at one point and then the head of MI6, wrote something about admiring folks because he followed his ideals. He never, he didn't take money. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't greed. And, and he had some admiration for him. And I, I was amazed when I read that. So there were enough people saying decent things about him and treating him decently that made me want to really look into who he was. And, and I also had the background on his family and himself and what he did for them and how he kept them alive and gave them money, what he did for friends. Um, so my, my, no one else had that. And I also had, and of course, his, his nephew admired him tremendously. So I had that side too. And I had to make sure that I did try to keep it balanced because he did do something that he shouldn't have done and it was being a traitor and he um he paid a price he didn't lose his life as some others did but he did pay a price and so it, it's it's very hard i think you've written about these kinds of things too and there are some people who kim philby what he did killed hundreds of people right. folks didn't kill anybody you know he in fact some people argue that he 
kept the U.S. perhaps from dropping another bomb, which was probably um, a good thing that we didn't do it. Some people disagree, but you know that's that's open to judgment. But it, we did not, and it wasn't only because the Russians had a bomb. There were a lot of other factors. But um, so there are there are different ways of always looking at things, and if you can try to see different sides of it, it, it helps to keep your objectivity. And of course, you're talking about dropping a bomb on North Korea during the Korean War. Yeah. Just to yeah. make sure the listeners understand about that. Um, so <laughs> something really interesting I found about this. It, it, so because the first thing you learn about Fuchs, and sometimes the only thing that you learn about Fuchs is his espionage, most yeah. people don't learn how exceptional he was as a scientist. And of course, this is somebody who was trained under Werner Heisenberg, and then later, more importantly, under Max Born. And so before we get into his motivations for spying, I want to talk about what I see in this book as such an interesting dichotomy. Unlike other spies you just referred to, like a Julius Rosenberg or even a Ted mm -hmm. Hall, mm -hmm. you, could, you, could, you could say, and I think you'd be okay saying, you know, with those guys, with the Rosenberg Hall, those kind, if, you, if only we had kept them away from atomic research, the Soviets wouldn't have had X. You can't say that really about Klaus Fuchs, because if he, you could argue, and I want to know what you think about this, you could mm -hmm. argue that if Klaus Fuchs hadn't been at Los Alamos, we might not have been able to build the bomb in the first place, because he was so important for that process. I think there's truth in that. There may have been somebody else who would have taken his place who would have also found the same answers to problems that he solved. Um, so it's it's hard to say it, but he certainly I'm throwing a counterfactual at you, but which I hate passionately. But the idea <laughs> is how important this this wasn't just another schlub at Los Alamos. Right. He was if he again if he wasn't if the first thing you didn't learn about him was his espionage. He would be up there with the betas and the Oppenheimers and the Feynmans and the, you know, the, the Fermi keyboards yes. that we all, you know, people who study this all know really, really well. Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's, I'm not a physicist. And so I can't really judge his physics. I can only judge what people say or, you know, reading enough myself to understand exact kind of what he did. And what he did was very important. Um, Hans Beta considered him one of the essential people on the project. Hans Bethe was in charge of the theoretical physics division at Los Alamos, so he's in charge of all of that. Other physicists in London who got, were, I think it was partly out of spite, said, oh, he was kind of second rate, you know. And so the, the, the British downplaying him has become a little bit of the usual story. Yeah, he was okay. But when you really look at what he did, and I, I don't think you can really maintain that. Uh, when he was at Los Alamos, he worked very hard on the plutonium bomb, and there was a big problem with it. And there were these jets. That would, when, with the bomb, you have these lenses, 32 of them, that explode and compress a a plutonium core that is underneath in order to say start a chain reaction they have to um fire within one one millionth of a second <laughs> and if they don't there are things called jets that come out of them that weaken the explosive force and therefore you don't get the chain reaction that you want he figured out theoretically 
what needed to be done in order to get rid of those jets. It was a crucial piece of building the plutonium bomb. And uh, and he did anything, any project they ever asked him, he did to their satisfaction. When the Brits were told to go home or decide to go home after the bomb was um, detonated and in 1945, they asked that folks stay on to continue doing, helping them with some research because they had some other projects they wanted them to work on. They wanted him to stay much longer. He left in June of 1946, but the, he could have stayed longer probably. So he, they considered him at Los Alamos essential. In England, after he you know, spied, it was, uh, you know, and there were right. petty jealousies and things like that. So I, I believe, I agree with you. I think he was very, very essential in not only that project, but he was the one theoretical physicist when he was at Harwell to help with the uh, British bomb. And obviously he had a great impact on the Russian bomb. So there were three bombs where he yeah. was crucial in. Yeah, well, I mean, when Don Cockroft took over the British program at Harwell, like Fuchs was like the first guy he called. I mean, it was one of these, yeah. you know, you're going to be my right-hand man. Um, one thing that you didn't mention that I thought was really interesting also was we know the Germans don't do a full-scale atomic bomb program because they miscalculated the, the amount of uranium-235 needed to create a critical mass. and. Yeah. And so they just say it's too hard to do. Let's not, you know, let's not build a Los Alamos. That was one of the first things Fuchs actually does when he's brought onto this program, is he redoes the math that the British had done and said, "Man, you guys are wrong. You actually have way too much. Your number's way too big of the critical mass." And he said, "Look, it's a lot less than you think." I mean, that that he basically solved the problem the Germans run into for the entire war in about ten minutes. You know, when he first well. There are two steps to that. Actually, the the first crack at the, they had had they the British and their scientists had had a huge amount that they thought they needed. They didn't understand how they could enrich uranium and things and and, and how it would all work effectively. And Piles and uh, Rudy Piles and Otto Frisch, both emigres, wrote a paper that and and showed that it could be done in much with much less. And then using what they had done, Fuchs came in and reduced it even further. So they took the first step to really show that it could be done. And it was based on their first step that the Brits decided they could actually have a bomb program. And then Fuchs helped them refine it even more. So his step was equally important, but he was kind of led the way by piles and he was with piles. He was, had just come on with piles um, like the month before to, to work on this project in, in uh, 1941 in the summer. So he hadn't even signed the official secrets act yet. This is kind of like, right. Hey, take a look at this clause and see what you think. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. You didn't care the one here is much, much less than you actually think it is. And then of course he, he was instrumental in, and developing the gaseous diffusion process, yes. uh, which yes. is one of the two, uh, for again, to catch up the listener, um, the, the Manhattan Project used two main methods for getting uranium-235 and separating it from uranium-238. One was a centrifuge method, and one was a gaseous diffusion method. Um, centrifuges had been understood for a while. Gaseous diffusion was something that was, as a theory, was understood, but the idea of could you do this thousands and thousands of times and do it so, you know, to such a ridiculous, ridiculously specific amount uh, that you could make this work. And he was, he helped very much. I mean, he, he wasn't the guy, 
but he helped a lot in coming up with the method for that too as well. Yeah, he did. And actually, when he became when he came to the U.S. and was in New York before he went to Los Alamos, that was the piece that he worked on was the gaseous diffusion. And the the U.S. already had their plans for it, but there were lots of problems with it, and it wasn't working completely. And he figured out all of the little problems and how to solve them so that actually you could do thousands of these things and it would keep running. He, there were 13 papers written about this by the British and he did, I think, 10 or 11 of them. So most of that was his work himself who really made the, the U.S. diffusion program work. And um, they would have been hard pressed to continue on with what they were doing successfully without his work. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So, this isn't a physics show, this is a spy show. So, let's talk about (laughs) motivations and why he decided uh, to, to spy for the Soviets. And, and I really, I, you know, like most of these people, it starts with family. And I think that yes. uh, his father was what we might today call a social justice warrior without the negative stigma. This is somebody who really yes. believed in social justice. I, you, used, you talk about Emil a lot in this book. I mean, is it clear from your conversations with the family and everything you've seen that his father was the guiding force in at least his young life? Yes, absolutely. It was a, the ethic of the family was to support the working class, and they sometimes kids rebel against that and go in the other direction. He had three others. He had three siblings, and all four of them went in the same direction as their father. Their mother agreed with that too, but she was more depressed and quiet and in the background. His father was always putting his opinions in the newspaper, and he was a Lutheran minister, and the Lutheran church is very conservative, and he was one of the very few liberal Lutheran ministers. You know, it's uh, um, almost unheard of, and and he he expounded his views on social justice and a better uh, better life for the working class and his so his children all picked it up and all worked to that goal and um they, in, in not only the message came from his father but the tenacity did too his his father was very outspoken klaus was extremely reserved and shy and didn't do politics as as a High school kid, he, you know, there was a lot of politics going on in Germany at that time. This was the 1920s. Um, and his siblings did. They were always getting in trouble by opening their mouth. He did not. He was a student. He was a mathematician. And he did his work. Um, so, but inside there was this core that was just like his father's. Mm-hmm. And it was steadfast it was persistent and he was he was quiet and shy quiet and shy but he was not uh, um he stood up he stood up and stood 
went forward when the need was there. And when he did become political with his brother, when he went to the university, it was his brother that kind of introduced him to it all, uh, who, was, who was two years older. He, he, he was steadfast. And he, if he had, had to speak up, he spoke up. He wrote a letter. He did whatever. He was right. not um, reserved when it came to that, those points of view at all. And he gets that from his father. I mean, I, I'm not a I'm not a child of the 1960s, but it's hard to not compare this time to the 1960s in America. Is unlike most of us who went to college, whether it's in the 90s or the 2000s or whatever, we have a decision whether or not we become political or not. You know, you know, either mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to become political or I'm going to go play ultimate frisbee. You have the choice. <laughs> when Kloss was in college, there's no choice. I mean, his formative years. The Nazis are gaining power. He's watching it happen. You really can't sit by the sideline. You either are going to join the Nazis who start to dominate the university system or you're going to rebel against them. It's very difficult not to become political in this case. You're exactly right. And because of this family background, he went to the University of Leipzig for his first university. And his brother, his older brother and his older sister were already there. And they themselves had already joined up with the Social Democrats or the Socialists as opposed to the Communists. And uh, they introduced him very quickly. He, all this, he, he got the message that we're fighting in the streets at that point with the Nazi students and, get with, and the Socialists and Communist students were all fighting in the streets against each sometimes the socialists or the communists would fight against each other and um you we you, you either sat and had a you know a, a coffee in the pub and did nothing or you you were on the streets fighting and that's klaus said that in during those years he learned much more in the streets than he did in the classroom and he became he became vice president of the social student group there from a person who never said a political thing in his life. So he, he took and was writing letters and in fights and, you know, so he, he, he took it up very quickly, partly under, I don't know if he had gone someplace where he didn't have other family. I do not know what he would have done, but his brother was a very powerful force in his life to lead him that way. And it was a protection of, you know, when anybody, it's a new step and you're trying to find yourself and you've got two siblings right there who had already been through it. You know, it's a it's a comforting way to start um, that that type of process. Well, and this is a time when it's particularly difficult. I mean, most people know this, perhaps, but some people may not understand that the 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 Jews, the Gypsies, the people who are the 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 victims of the Holocaust were not the first targets of the Nazis. Right. It were the communists. It were the liberals. It was the the socialists. Even though. The, you know, the, the, the official name of the Nazi is the National Socialist. There were nothing socialist about them. Their targets, you know, were the left wing. And this is kind of where I see Kloss learning some of his tradecraft as a student, recruiting students without getting caught. I mean, it's a little bit of spy stuff, even when he was a young kid. Yes, that is true. When he when he made it to Berlin, because he, uh, that was in 1933 when Hitler became chancellor, he had to go underground because the Gestapo was looking for him. He had been at the University of Kiel, and because of his um, outspokenness and um, the ac ac activism there on his part, he became the number one student that the Gestapo in Kiel were looking for. And he, he ended up in Berlin and hiding out. And um, 
it, it was a very dangerous situation for all of these young people. They did, you had to, the, the communists were training them to some degree, telling them not to look behind when you're walking to make sure that, you know, because you give yourself away if you look to see if you're being followed. Uh, little, little things like that, not to put your name down and, you know, give anybody your name. Uh, you don't make lists of things. Everybody stay, it didn't quite work as well as they wanted, but they, that was the idea. So he was indoctrinated to some degree into spying and staying undercover and and um, protecting himself that way. And he was just about, supposedly, the Gestapo were quite close to catching him, and he escaped and got to France. Well, let me ask you the question that, that I think we all want to know is your opinion on why he decides to spy. Is it the, you know, the Kim Phobie Soviet utopia idea? Is it the you know, Ted Hall internationalization of science idea, or is it the, why are we not helping an ally and keeping this information from the Soviets during the war? Or is it a combination of all of these things? It was a little bit of a combination. When he started at the University of Kiel and he became a communist there because of the politics that were going on, his goal was to fight the Nazis. And he felt that the communists were the best place to do it from their groups because they were the only ones really fighting. The socialists were not. And um, it, it, so it, it wasn't so, and his, the ideology, the difference between the socialists and the communists basically were the communists wanted to get to an ideal social um, justice world through revolution. And the socialists wanted to get there through the democratic process. And he didn't care whether it was a revolution or not. He was just willing to fight. And so they both had, you know, they were both for the working class. And that's what mattered to him as well as pushing back on the Nazis. And that was his way to do it. So at first, even though they had classes that he was supposed to take and all this, he didn't do it. Um, he had a girlfriend and they went and fought. They didn't have time, <laughs> they didn't have time to sit in class. But when he got to to England, he did start studying Marx and, and um, Lenin and all of that much more intensely. And, he, you know, he doesn't talk about it himself, but it does seem as though he, once he was there, he got pulled into the ideology more. And a lot of his friends from Germany and Berlin and the underground came over to England around the same time. And unbeknownst to anybody, I mean, I figured this out, he was meeting with them and staying in close touch with this little um, group that had formed. They were communists, but they were German communists. They were not British communists, big difference. And they didn't, the two groups did not really associate. So he had this strong group of people he knew who knew him, who had seen what they'd all been through this terrible time in Berlin in the underground. So there was a bond, a strong bond, and some of them were extremely strong communists, and that was it. And then he got, he got to the internment phase in 1940 when the British rounded up 30,000 German emigres, most of whom were Jewish. Fuchs was not Jewish. And he was in a camp in, in Canada with one of the main Russian recruiters, I don't think he knew that at the time, and became very close friend to this person by the name of Hans Kahler. And Kahler was a huge influence on, on um, Fuchs. And I'm sure when Kahler met him and, and spent time with him, one of his main goals was to get Klaus to spy. I don't, you know, and how much what he actually did is not known, but they were very close. And what kind of conversations they had, 
we don't know. But I, my feeling is, even though people say it's other people that influence them somewhat, it was, I'm sure it was Collar. They were just too close during that time. So he, he had a lot of forces on him once he got to England to really get involved in communism, the ideology, and then to spy when he had the opportunity. So we already talked about Klaus Fuchs at Los Alamos and the access that he had to all that information. What I found really interesting is after the war, uh, again, we've already talked about him being at Harwell, which is the British Los Alamos, but there's this time when he's, he, it's almost like a spy kid in a candy store when he works on declassification issues in the United States. Basically, I, I almost laughed out loud at this. I actually didn't know this part of the story that he was part of the group that was trying to figure out what to declassify when mm -hmm. it came to the Manhattan Project. Uh, talk about the last thing you'd want a spy to be doing is looking through <laughs> all the classified documents to figure out what should be released. This is right. <laughs> well, the, he he did, but his he was only making a recommendation. Of course, his recommendation was important because they trusted him, and he wasn't the only one looking at these things. And then it would go up to the next level, and somebody else would decide. But he, he yes, you, you're absolutely right. If he wanted, of course, the people that he would theoretically could get it out to already had it. <laughs> he had already given it to him. <laughs> and he himself already knew this stuff. So he wasn't learning anything. The only thing they were declassifying was what had been worked on at Los Alamos or, you know, other places during during the Manhattan Project. And he had um access to all of that when he was there. He could go into the library at Los Alamos at any time. He had all the right passes and look up anything he wanted to. And he did. I mean, he passed on a lot of that. So, yes, you, you're absolutely right. And it is a little bit of a, a funny story, but he, he wasn't the last word, but he was one of the words. <laughs> so, what, what is your, so there's been a lot of debate about his impact on the hydrogen bomb, the, develop, the Soviet development of the hydrogen bomb. You, you speak about this in the book. I'm wondering what what is your take on we can debate the Los Alamos atomic bomb part all we want because yeah, we, we yeah. all have our own little nuanced thoughts about that. But yeah. the, the, what do you where do you come down on the the side of the, the hydrogen bomb? Because like you said, he knew Teller well. Uh, you know, Teller was one of the, the you know the architects of the American bomb program, and he was involved in all these conversations. Uh, how much do you think he helped the Soviets get their own bomb? Sakharov, as you mentioned in the book. Mm -hmm. who is the father of the Soviet bomb, it, he, won't, he didn't tell us. So we kind of have to guess. I wonder where you're right. going Well, I, 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 again, not being a physicist, it was, that part is a little bit hard to discern, I think. And it's my understanding um, that he, if, if the original bomb, the hydrogen bomb that Teller had um, designed had actually worked, he would have been and he would he gave all of that information to the russians but it didn't work mm. and it wasn't going to work it wasn't i don't even think it was close to working and so what he gave them maybe that was important that they didn't go in that direction it saved them time not to look there um you know they didn't have to develop it all themselves and he and uh, john von neumann who was a mathematician uh, probably considered the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, um, a brilliant person. And he worked out a design, a, a triggering mechanism, a different one that didn't work either, but it had a clue to the final design that did work. Right. And um, he didn't, he never, he wasn't around when the final design was actually developed by Teller and Ulam. 
So he couldn't have given them that because he didn't have it. But what he and, and Neumann did, he did give them. And it, if that's the question, could they have discerned from that the, – the, the Americans did not. It does not appear that they did. Teller and Ulam did it all on their own without the looking at what Fuchs and, and, and von Neumann did. But um, the Russians might have seen it differently. They did have it. So that is the – nobody knows, as you say, because nobody has – nobody – told or even remembers where their design came from. And Sakharov could have looked at this and even not even realized that he saw a little piece that then jiggered something. Creativity and ideas are an interesting thing, and you don't sometimes know where the genesis comes from. So I, I, that's my opinion. I don't think he really had that much to do with it. And other people seem to say yes, but I don't know how they come to that conclusion because he wasn't around when the real answer came right. forward. Well, I mean, that's the interesting part of these debates will go on, you know, no matter what information comes out. I mean, that it's it, it's more than just who gave what. It's about science. It's about understanding. It's about, unfortunately, it's about counterfactuals. Like, would they have gotten mm -hmm. there anyway, right? You can never answer mm -hmm. that question. Uh, you, know, mm -hmm. you know, let me ask, you spent a lot of time in this book, which, which is something I, I hadn't really focused on before. Because, again, I'd focused a lot on the Los Alamos side and the spying side, the legal side of the British system uh, was something I hadn't focused on a lot, which I thought was really interesting um, because here in the United States, we look at Venona and the inability to prosecute people like Ted Hall because only the, the only information of his guilt comes from Venona. There's somewhat a similar problem with Klaus Fuchs. Even when he confesses, there's an issue because he confesses, straight up says, yep, yeah, I was a spy. They were still worried about the ability to prosecute him. Well, in part because they induced him. Yeah. They made a lot of promises to him. I think they felt they could use – if his test, his, his confession would stand, um, then they were fine. But they were afraid because they had promised him all kinds of things, like he could go back to his job and continue doing research if he confessed. Now, what they say is, well, we didn't realize how much he had really spied good enough, but maybe you have to condition what you make promises for. And it was, and people will say, well, how could he have been so naive to think they would even have kept their word, which they didn't legally have to do, but there, there is the inducement issue. So um, he, he chose not to use that issue as a way of throwing out his confession. If they had thrown out his confession, they could not have prosecuted him, right. and he didn't do it. So the inducement piece was uh, people kind of poo-poo it a little bit, but I read a lot of documents by people in meetings saying, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? I think we got a problem here. So that, that is how I, I see it, not so much that Venona didn't matter anymore because they had the goods on him, but he, um, he had this one other piece. So, Well, and this key, right? I mean, like you mentioned, for whatever reason, he assumed he'd be able to keep his job at the British Atomic, you know, research facility. I don't, I don't know how, I don't know why, I don't know if he was either so egotistical that he believed that there's no way they'd replace him, or he was so kind of the naive scientist that just didn't understand the world and worked around him. That feel like, you know, that's like, that's like if we had caught Ted Hall and had information and said, no, you know what, go back and run Los Alamos for us. Right. right. Like, there's no way that's going to happen. Well, you thought, know, yeah, I mean, he thought they, he, if I if I confess, they'll let me go back to my job. That's just 
I don't I don't get that, but again, I'm not Carl Spooks. Well, they told him that. They yeah. said if you confess, you can stay at at Harwell. And he, I think he, he was in the midst of probably having a bit of a nervous breakdown. He did at some point try to commit suicide through all of this. And after he'd started, you know, having interviews with them, it really got to him. So and his, he had um, friends who knew a teeny bit that he had spied and saying, how can you do this to your friends? You must confess. And he, and they all, and he heard it from more than, he heard it from John Conkrock, Cockroft, who was his, you know, one level up boss and who told him that, that he could come back. So he was hearing it from a scientist whom he trusted, who knew was a decent person. He was hearing it from MI5 a few times, not just once. And he believed, so he believed them because that's what he, they were telling him. And he actually had a, a positive attitude towards the British. He, he found them to be, at that particular moment, he found them to be a very um, welcoming and warm people that he wanted to stay with. He decided he didn't want to go back to Germany or Russia. He wanted to stay there, and he admired them. So, he, it, you know, he had a, 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 um, a complicated psychology, and there had been, you know, his mother and his sister committed suicide, and her mother and mother and mother, seven generations of his mother's family committed suicide. So there was a depressive core there. Um, and that was all part of his makeup. He knew all that. And I, I, I think that is why he was willing to believe them. He was told them that very strongly. So that's my take on it <laughs> when I read all this. So I, I actually hadn't realized how long he lived. Um, mm. he, he lived basically till the end of the Cold War, which is um appropriate i would think um in that case what overall i don't mean just his spying i mean overall mm. from not only the spying time to when he worked as a researcher at harwell to when he worked after he had basically moved back behind the iron curtain if, if we wanted to assess his impact and again i know you're not a physicist but right. as, as a historian of physicists if we wanted to assess his impact on the broad sense of not only you know the Cold War part of the you know espionage and, and the broader as a scientist. Where would you put him? Well, that's a very good question, um, and it's, it, I don't know if you can. You have to look at everything that happened to him in order to assess it, and then how people themselves react to that. Both the, the, the spying, the prison, going back to East Germany, becoming what looked like a very um, uh, committed communists when he went back there. So I think that he is probably, in overall, the way most people think of him is that he was a traitor, that that is his lasting legacy in a way. In fact, somebody asked me when I was writing the book, is he re was he really evil? And I said, well, you know, he did risk his life <laughs> to fight the Germans, really risk it with the Gestapo. And you get captured, you were tortured and killed. That has to count for something about the kind of person he was, but he did do what he did as well. So how do you, this, it's a sense of moral ambiguity. How do you um, balance all of those factors? So I think in the collective impression is that he was basically a traitor. In my book, I think I provide a lot of information to explain him in more depth and see him in a fuller light. So my impression of him is that he was um, 
in to his to him, he was true to himself and he he was committed to something he did it for what he thought were honorable reasons and uh he never changed his mind about that and uh so i i, I guess that's the the best that i can come down with is that he was true to himself and he, to himself he was honorable and he his conscience was clear the book is atomic spy the dark lives of klaus fuchs uh it just came out about a month and change ago. It's definitely something mm -hmm. worth grabbing. Once you're done reading that, you should absolutely read The End of the Certain World, The Life and Science of Max Born. Uh, author of both those books is Nancy Greenspan. Nancy, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I know we've been trying to get this together for a while. I'm glad we finally did. We really appreciate it. <laughs> me too, Vince. And I really appreciate you having me. And it was a fun um, chat. And maybe we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.